3CR acknowledges that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boron people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders past and present and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement. We recognize sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and how are we all today? Very good, Grace. How are you this morning? I'm good. Uh, a bit of a messiness <laughs> just now, but a bit of... Yeah, I got a bit clumsy and all, but I think... No, you're fine. You're fine. all good. All good. It's been a very uh, cold morning this morning, Grace. It uh, has been. I think it's only about two degrees outside. So those listening, uh, make sure you've got your winter warmers on and uh, chuck on the uh, uh, the hot kettle and uh, listen to us all this morning. We've got a big show coming up. Mm-hmm. Yep, as usual. We have a big, big show. Um, and last week was Radiothon. Uh we just want to say thank you so much to everyone who have tuned in during that day and have made some and made generous donations for us and 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 make just any donation like it doesn't matter whether it's a big or small but whatever you have given us just means so much to us and we are so internally grateful for your support and continue to keeping Tracy out on air. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and make sure to donate if you still want to donate. You can call the sh- call the studio in nine four one nine. Eight three double seven. Also come into three CR three CR Studios on Smith Street if you want to come down and uh, give your donation as well. It is tax deductible, so that's the key thing. Anything over two dollars is tax deductible. So uh, it's it's great for us and gives us good support um, in the future. Mm-hmm. Yep. So what we got for today on the show? Uh, so Grace, we've got a big show coming up, as I said. So firstly, we'll be uh, hearing from my story, which I produced uh, last week regarding to the Barack Beacon Estate, which we, uh, we've discussed on this show only a month ago. Um, so you'll hear an update uh, story from uh, myself. Uh, I went off to the rally last Thursday. It was great, even though it was a bit cold and wet. It was it was great fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see you will be speaking uh, to Jordan Giao, so author of Disconnect, um, regarding uh, to the current situation with AI, which is fascinating. And uh, also we have, uh, I'm just looking down the run chain here, uh, we'll be also hearing from uh, James Clark, an executive director of the Digital Rights Watch uh, so some fascinating uh, stuff going on today as well. Um, so much, very much looking forward to that one, Grace. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then finally, we will be talking to David Major Canales, who is the senior lawyer at the Human Rights Lawyer Centre. And we'll be going to be discussing the anti-protest laws and its impact has been on Australia. And also including the needs to support uh, uh, HRLC for defending, continue to defending rights. And what we got, what we've got for headlines today? Well, we'll start off with a sporting theme, Grace. Given uh, the Ashes has just wrapped up for the first Test match, and Pat Cummins has led Australia to a stunning victory in the first Ashes Test, chasing down 281 with just two wickets left inside the final five overs on the last day at Edsbaston. Cummins scored an unbeaten 44 as he and Nathan Lyon, 
who made 16, not out, put on 55 for the ninth wicket mm-hmm. to win in fading light in an eerie reversal of Australia's two-run loss at the same ground in 2005. In other news, the PM is urged to start the COVID inquiry, according to The Age. Uh, Prime, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is being urged to launch a sweeping investigation into the country's response to the COVID-19 pandemic by the year's end to avoid turning the probe into a political blame game in the run-up to the next federal election. Policy experts and the Australian Medical Association believe that Albanese must follow last week's decision to order an independent review of the $90 billion JobKeeper program with a wide-ranging inquiry into all aspects of federal and state government responses to the pandemic. Awesome. And so going a bit to more international news, Hunter Biden will be guilty to federal crimes as part of the plea deal with the Justice Department to resolve tax and firearm crimes. Biden, who's 53 years old, was charged with illegally uh, owning a firearm in 2018 after lying about his drug use when he purchased a gun. uh, Hunter Hunter Biden was also charged with failing to file and pay taxes in 2017 and 2018, which are misdemeanor offences. Departments from the Justice Documents from the Justice Department confirms that Biden will... Enter a P-trial diversion agreement for the firearm offence. But the White House has been preparing for possible potential political fallout related to charges against Hunter Biden since early May, as lawyers representing Biden met with top federal prosecutors in Delaware in April. And going to a bit more fun fact, and I guess a bit more helpful things for a lot of us who have lack of sleep, taking a short nap during the day actually may help to protect the brain's health as it ages. Researchers have suggested after finding out that the practice appears to be associated with larger brain volume. While previous research has suggested long naps could be a possible early symptom of Alzheimer's disease. Other works have revealed that a brief dose can improve people's ability to learn. New researchers say they have found evidence to suggest napping may help in protest against brain shrinkage. But as the Guardian continues to report that it's of interest, the team say, as brain shrinkage, a process that occurs with age, is accelerated in people with cognitive problems and neurodegenerative diseases, with some research suggesting this may be related to sleep problems. And that's all we got for news headlines this morning. So we're going to be heading into a song now. We've got a lovely song called World on Fire by Dolly Parton.
politics. Now, how are we to live in a world like this? Greedy politicians, present and past. They wouldn't know the truth if it bit them in the ass. Now, tell me what is truth? Have we all lost sight of common decency? Of the wrong and right? How do we heal this great divide? Do we care enough to try? Janie got a sign to carry in the fight. Marching in the streets with sticks and stones. Don't you ever believe words don't break bones. And that was World on Fire by Dolly Parton. Very very strong song for the morning, but a good wake-up, I guess. <laughs> Definitely. Dolly Parton, one of the best singers going around um, mm-hmm. from from the days of uh, country music when it all started off, Grace. But we are now going to uh, set a little different mood now. We're going to be speaking uh, regarding the Barack Beacon Housing Estate. Uh, last month, we brought you coverage regarding the last rally, which was held just before Margaret Kelly sent a letter to the housing minister in Colin Brooks. In a month, in a month's gone time, in a month has gone 
The sound of diggers and workers have now greeted the once public housing estate, with Barack Beacon residents, including Margaret Kelly, fighting on to halt eviction notices. Last week, I went down to chat with Margaret and fellow residents regarding to the situation. On a cold and dreary Thursday, resident of Barack Beacon, Margaret Kelly and her band of supporters met at the steps of Parliament as they continue their fight to halt the eviction of residents from the Barack Beacon housing estate based in Port Melbourne, which the current state government are urging to redevelop through their big build program by Homes Victoria and classify it as social housing. Margaret Kelly, uh, a resident from Barack Beacon. Margaret, how are you going today? Good, good, thanks. Lovely to have all these people here, even though it's raining. That's the key thing. You need all these people out in force, yes. helping, helping the cause. So, Margaret, firstly, um, how are you feeling after a month's gone, after the rally you had uh, going to Colin Brooks's uh, office? Okay. Well, it's been up and down because Colin Brooks did announce to the media that he was going to meet with me. But then he sent me a letter saying he would meet with me to discuss where I wanted to relocate to, which was rather missing the point, I thought. And, you know, I had raised some very serious issues about sustainable development and tenant welfare and some of the really awful things that have happened at the estate. And, you know, so I wrote back and said I wanted to talk about those things. Yeah. Margaret sent a letter to the Housing Minister for Victoria in Colin Brooks. She's wanting a further meeting to discuss policy around public housing, not just her relocation. And I haven't heard back since, so I'm, we're going to take another letter today. Yeah, OK. And what are you hoping What are you hoping from this letter to Colin Brooks now? What's the, I what's the goal? hoping that he will meet with me, that he will then seriously explore um, the plans that... Simon and Steve have done from office to renovate rather than destroy the estate um, because I don't believe they have made various comments about them but they've come from people who don't have any qualifications apart from the fact they work for Homes Victoria so you know and I don't think that's a qualification um, to make technical comments Um, so yeah that's what I'm hoping that we can actually um, get him to pay attention to what's happening but also to what has happened to a number of tenants on the estate. Margaret tells me the estate is already being demolished with a VCAT order already in place by the state government to evict her but she remains hopeful that other options can be put in place such as renovations. Yes, they have started. So far they've done no damage to the actual structure. You know, they're removing fences and doors and windows and stuff. Um, So, you know, I'm still staying cheerful. (laughs) Yes, yeah. I did see it's going to VCAT. Is, is that the gov- government pushing that yes, to VCAT? Yes, so yeah. they want to get a position order so they can have me evicted. Yeah, yeah. Um, what are you hoping? What are you hoping from that? Moment? Well, do you think, do you think that's going to occur? Or I'm hoping that VCAT will rule in my favour, of course. Oh, of course. Um, yeah. That um, you know there are other solutions than demolition and that they have not explored them and of course it's going to cause me great personal hardship as a person who is very attached to my home and my locality um, to remove me.
Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's it's uh, you, your home is your your castle, as as yes. quite the movie, Margaret. Yes, exactly. You know? And Home Victoria has a lot of well, they've changed their name from housing to Home Victoria. Yeah. Yes. So you would think that that would mean they're acknowledging that, and they have a big. If you go and look at their about section, well, on it's a bit confusing. I looked at it and I went, I've never heard of this the corporation in, in my life, Margaret. No. And I kind of sat back and went, what's well, this all about? You know, It's only existed since November 2020 and yeah. it's put the Homes Victoria has run up a $235 million debt yeah. when yeah. housing has always operated on the tenants' rents. Mm. I mean, that's what pays for running Homes Victoria. Um, not charity. Yes, and yeah. So somehow they've done something with all those rents. Um, we're still wanting to know what. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, many, many issues to explore here. One of the issues that was raised by Margaret was maintenance. She has said that maintenance has been halted on the estate with a bizarre scenario of a plumber being called out to the estate to fix a simple linking tap. She said it was already fixed. Issues to explore here and, of course, for all public tenants, they're going through a terrible time because whatever they've spent that money on, it has not been maintenance. Yeah. Maintenance has almost ceased. I had a plumber turn up at my place yesterday to fix some leaking taps that I reported three months ago. Wow. And in the meantime, a friend's son has come round and fixed them for me Always a couple of months one. ago. So yeah. I thought... Yeah. Bit late, sweetie. Bit late, bit late, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's a very difficult time. As you may have heard by Margaret, the idea of renovations was provided to Homes Victoria and the state government. This was through the non-for-profit organisation, The Office. I spoke to architects Steve Minton and Simon Robinson. Yeah, so we run a practice called Office, which is a not-for-profit design research firm. So um, Steve's a landscape architect, I'm an architect. Um, and we work with uh, engineers, uh, economists and quantity surveyors to see refurbishment of very vehicles. Technically possible and then also cost efficient, which we found out that it is. Okay, well, and what would that mean in cost efficiency? So what, so you're saying that we better to actually redevelop it than demolish it and then re, re-put up a, a new building? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, through refurbishment, we can actually increase... Um, the amount of apartments by 20%. And then we're also proposing you can infill, so build new buildings around the existing buildings yeah. to create the uh, increased density that the government saying is required for the site. Both architects argue it is cheaper and would be a much more suitable option for residents, but also for the government. Architect Simon Robinson. So in, in doing that, it's obviously a huge amount cheaper to do that because you're not demolishing buildings and then building new buildings. You're using what's existing and then infilling around that. So, yeah. How much how much money would that be saving the government if they did that? Um, upfront cost is around $28 million, I think. Okay. And then if you look over the 40-year um, lease of the, the land that's leased out to the private uh, developer, I think it's up around $88 million. So it's probably better. Just thinking now, yeah, that just wow, that by wow, that figure, it tells you it's probably better to be doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and kind of what's key to that also is through the staging of construction that residents wouldn't have to be relocated. Oh, okay. So that's kind of the 
The main ambition with our proposal is not relocating residents because of the social and health impacts that has on tenants. So Margaret's lived on that estate for, I think, 25 years. That's all her uh, friends, um, health connections, all those kind of things are there. And so to relocate vulnerable people off estates that have those strong connections actually has huge detriment. According to both architects, the plans that they provided to both the Minister and Homes Victoria were rejected and argue this demolition of Barack Beacon will cause a reduction in public housing across Victoria. They, I mean, they're going ahead with demolishing. Like, yeah. I think that's the, the, the pretty clear proof of what they're doing. They're yeah. demolishing it as we speak. They've evicted nearly all of the residents except for um, a couple that are leaving. Um, so I think that shows that their interest isn't in refurbishment, it's in demolition and, and rebuild. Um, and, yeah. and in doing that, the reduction of public housing, so the removal of planning public housing. Harry Millwood, a delegate for the North Region branch of Renters and Housing Union, said it is atrocious that the demolition of Barack Beacon is occurring and he wants more public housing support for the state. The estate has started being demolished while she's still living there, yeah. which is atrocious. And uh, we're calling on the powers that be to stop demolishing homes in a housing crisis, rebuild Barack Beacon and invest in public housing. Harry says the people of Barack Beacon have nowhere to go and believes that the residents of Barack Beacon, who are wanting to remain in public housing, will have to go back on the public housing waiting list. This can cause a backlog, according to Harry. Harry Millwood speaking. People have nowhere to go. The, the, the public housing wait list is getting ever longer and everybody who was in uh, Barack Beacon... Will now have to go, will have to go back on that waiting list? Is what, no. If they want to go back into public housing, yes. But all of those homes that they are being put into are taking up spaces that other people were waiting for. Oh, no. So it's, it's just, it's madness. Yeah. Uh, I, there's no economic argument for it. There's no moral argument for it. There's no, uh, there's no, there's no argument for it that I can understand. On the political front, the Greens have been the main supporters for Margaret Kelly with the Victorian Greens leader, Samantha Rathen, disappointed by the state's government policy regarding to public housing. Victoria Greens leader, Samantha Rathen, speaking. Well, we're really devastated that the government is privatising public housing by force and by stealth. Uh, it's been going on for a number of years now, and what we're seeing at Barrack Beak in the state is another example of them careering ahead with demolishing public housing. No plans to build any more public housing at the site. In fact, the majority is going to be private housing with only some community housing at the site. In the midst of a housing crisis, we should be building tens of thousands more public homes, not privatising the only land that we have to build public housing. I asked Samantha Rathen why Margaret has not been given the time to speak to the housing minister in Colin Brooks, and she believes they are holding public housing residents in contempt. Why do you think the Why do you think the minister doesn't want to have a conversation with Margaret, especially regarding housing policy? Well, they are just doubling down now. That's what we've seen from the government. They haven't actually awarded any contracts or tenders for rebuilding on that side. But because the campaign is really um, gearing up in force, they've started demolition works with yeah. no plans for reconstruction. So that tells you the attitude of this government, which is holding public housing residents in contempt for standing up for their homes and the homes of thousands of other Victorians who rely on public housing. This 
government is so wedded to your neoliberal privatisation agenda. They're selling off our public assets, including our public housing land, and no wonder we're ending up in the level of crisis that we are seeing right now when governments don't recognise their core responsibility to provide affordable housing for the community. The Victorian Greens leader said her party will be pushing ahead with future housing bills and believes the government should rethink its plans around public housing, which includes the Greens' policy to build 100,000 homes in the next decade to support public housing and the ongoing housing crisis. The bill in the, in the future? Well, we're going to be using every possible lever and tactic that we have available to keep pressure on the government, highlight what they're doing, for the general public to recognise and become aware of what they're doing. So many people don't know what's going on. Yeah, I know. It's, it's been a bit invisible. That's in right. That and, um, what, but we, what we've seen is that when people do understand what's going on, they're really shocked and they want the government to rethink their plans. So number one is getting the word out and yeah. everyone has a, a job that you can do, get the word out yeah, and course. make people aware. And then we've got to use our um, influence and ability in the parliament to be able to put pressure on the government, hold them accountable and hopefully get them to rethink their plans. Yeah, yeah. And what's the Greens policy in the future regarding public housing? We want to see, you know, at least 100,000 public homes built over the next decade with a waiting list of over 120,000 people now waiting for public housing, 30,000 people experiencing homelessness on any given night. We need a mass deal with public housing now. That's how you create more affordable housing. It has a huge ripple effect on the rest of the housing market too. It puts downward pressure on rents and prices. And this is what governments can do. They must do. With the Victorian state government pushing ahead with the demolition of Barack Beacon Estate in Port Melbourne, it will be up to the Victorian Civil and Administration Tribunal to decide the fate of the residents of Barack Beacon and Margaret Kelly. The decision will come next Thursday, the 22nd of June, on whether Margaret will be evicted from her home for the last 25 years. And you are on 3CR. Um, You were just listening to uh, the story regarding to the Barack Beacon Estate Rally, which happened last Thursday regarding to Barack Beacon Estate based in Port Melbourne, which is being demolished uh, as we speak. Um, 3CR has posed questions to the Victorian government regarding to the Barack Beacon, and they said in a statement uh, via a government, a Victorian government spokesperson, We acknowledge that moving home can be difficult, but to live in more than 300 new, much-needed social and affordable homes at Barack Beacon, we need to relocate any remaining residents. Margaret has been offered three separate, modern, spacious, accessible homes nearby, but has refused to engage with Homes Victoria to explore the suitability of these homes. If she chooses to, Margaret will have priority access to return to one of the newly constructed homes at Barack Beacon once the redevelopment is complete. The important project will revitalise the Barack Beacon community and allow more people to make Port Melbourne their home. We can make of that of what you make, but uh, we'll leave the full statement uh, online. Uh, tomorrow, VCAT will hand down their decision on Margaret and th- make sure to stay with 3CR as we'll keep you updated on this ever-going um, situation. Interesting stuff, uh, Pat. So really, really exciting stuff. So people can continue staying tuned to listen to more things coming from Pat uh, after a month uh, because Pat is actually going away. Is that correct? <laughs> yes, yes, Grace. And uh, just, just quickly as well, I just want to, or highlight as well. If you want to see the plans that were decided by the architects in Steve Minton, you can also go to uh, office.com.au. Uh, sorry, office.org.au. That will be also in the show notes as well. Uh, yes, I'm going away in a month's time, Grace. Um, that'll be very nice. But 
um, this story is very important and uh, it's 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 an ever going ever changing story and uh, as I said you know uh, we've got an interesting uh, couple of weeks ahead uh, mm-hmm. with this story yep and we will hear back for more updates from you when you come back so, yes nice awesome and now uh, so basically last week we had our radiothon and then I, I basically spoke to Jordan Guerra who was the author of Disconnect, why we get pushed to extremes online and how do we stop it. And basically I introduced uh, and discussed with Jordan about his book that he released last, I think it was around October, November. And uh, yeah, November. And then we it, it basically talked about um, the different scenarios and cases of how people get influenced with what's being said online with conspiracy theories and dating apps and everything. So obviously a lot of things have changed since then because of the AI and and I guess Jordan probably has to find new ways to talk about how we are going to get, how do we stop from getting pushed to extremes online now that the AI is in. And we also basically talked about Current situation, the current updates on like the impact on the internet and media diversity, which was a big discussion with regard with uh, in relation to Radiothon as well, and supporting independent independent media. So let's take a listen. And now we're going to be going to our next guest. So we'll be speaking to Jordan Grail, who is the who was the author of Disconnect, uh, which I spoke to about internet extremism and how how to how to avoid it and stop it. And so I guess we're gonna be also listening a bit about like situation now with the AI and Jordan has been a very great uh, person, a uh, very great author of his book that really, really explains a lot about uh, the situation during COVID and all with, inter- with the internet. And he, and we'll be having him now. Hi, Jordan. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? It's been, it's been, it's been a while <laughs> since last year. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's been a few months. It's good to speak to you again. Yeah, thank thank you so much for give, giving us the time to talk to you. So yeah, I think a, a lot has happened since your book was released. Your book, I I, remember, I read your entire book, and it was just really very very interesting insights into the into the web and the conspiracy theorists. And it's just it was just very interesting how like. Things, things like that can actually happen, and peop- and what people can experience with the internet. And now that the AI is out, so that's that's a lot. There's been a lot of things going on. Yeah. yeah. So, so what have you been? What have you been up to? And what 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 did you kind of had uh, learn about after your book came out? Yeah. Um. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um. Yes, yeah, so I've been speaking to a lot of people about the book and, you know, figuring out their thoughts and at the same time trying to keep up with the regulations. So I think that there are some really interesting developments that seem to be happening. You know, there's the review of the Privacy Act, which is happening right now. There's a few codes out around online safety. So, you know, it does feel like there's some general movement um, happening in this space. But at the same time, when I, when I spoke to, when I speak to everyday people, so recently, I was at uh, Niger River, actually, in, in WA for the Writers' Festival there. And I spoke to lots of people who really still felt like this was such a big issue that wasn't really being paid enough attention to. So, you know, in a way, there's there's the uh, juxtaposition of people feeling like there's not much progress happening. But at the same time, at the legislative level, there's a little bit of stuff happening as well. So I guess the situation is largely the same. Um, but mm. hopefully what the book has done is, 
you know, like shine a light on what some of these online issues are about. And as you say, like AI, oh my God, like we haven't even sorted out the, the issues with social media. And there's this huge tidal wave kind of coming almost here, basically, that's going to dwarf all of it. So it, it's a bit like, uh, what do we do next? So, yeah. yeah it's just, Little by little, I guess. Yeah, especially because I remember you mentioned a lot about COVID as well. That that people kind of got influenced with like the information of it and stuff during uh, in 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 the internet. And then you talked a lot about that. And obviously, COVID is actually still going on now. And yeah. but then but then now comes in the AI, and then they're just like rooting everything and like messing up the whole thing about internet and making it more extreme than it really was. So yeah. I, so yeah, I guess. I guess this 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 could mean that you're gonna write a part two for your why we get pushed <laughs> extremism on online. Yeah, it's just it's so funny much. Funny you mentioned that. It really feels like it's needed actually. Yeah, and and yeah, there's just gonna be continuously so much things to just continuously talk about because it's just it's just so awful that like so many so many things bad things are happening on the internet, but also good things at the same time. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Yeah, so Jordan, you actually you 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 actually work you actually work for the ABC, so you definitely do know a lot, lot about the media actually. So yeah. how how important do you think it is to get a diverse media diet? Yeah, so I so to clarify, I used to work at the ABC. I, I no longer work there, but oh, yeah, yes. but I was there for for a time, and SBS as well. So you know. Uh, like uh, this is a really important to have a diverse media. So um, my previous book actually was called The Public Square Project, and it was all about how um, we the the digital platforms feel like they're taking over our media space. So whereas before, I mean, there was a bit of an issue with media diversity in Australia in general, right? Which is why community radio is so important. But now. You know, on top of that, some of the digital platforms are also taking over some of the functions of our media, which is, you know, gathering information and news, disseminating information and news, and then um, facilitating discussion around that. So, um, you know, in, in, in a way, that technology conversation is very much critical to a diverse media as well, because big tech is taking over a lot of its functions. So. You know, it's such a important um, conversation to to have that um, to make sure community radio and local radio as well is really represented. Mm. Yeah, and obviously, and obviously with our with platforms like us, you know, we there's a role being played by us where we have independent, ethically source source news, and that's that's I think that's so important in like journalism generally like it's very important for all the fact checking and making sure our news sources are factual and but then now with like the ai coming in that's that that that's going to be a very big impact on journalism is that correct yeah i think so and what we're seeing is that i guess further erosion of that as you say really local level news so I feel like the bigger players will be okay and they'll probably use it to their advantage. But what might be disrupted is that more localized level that's tied to a specific place, you know, that's run by community organizations. So we have to make sure that that valuable source of information, um, you know, doesn't get uh, too severely disrupted by these big technologies because they're really important. And, you know, it's certainly, I don't think, um, those new technologies can replace that valuable um, 
outlets. And, you know, I've heard interesting conversations around, you know, often it's just about cost cutting and all that. So I think we really need to place value in our local news organisations more than just about, yeah, um, costs, I guess. Mm, I see, definitely. And so, and so Jordan, I, and I'll say now with your book that has always been advocating and raising awareness on how to stop uh, people getting pushed to extremes on online. So I'll, um, not with I, and I'm I'm really interested to see what you will to come up with in the near future. I'm not obviously it's going to take quite a while, but I'm I'm really looking forward to your your upcoming projects and all. So uh, before before we let you go, I, so I believe you, you you mentioned that you'll be making a pledge. So are you able to support yeah. Tracy today? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So I'm very happy to uh, make a pledge to you guys. You guys do such important work and, you know, thank you for covering my work and being interested in those topics. I think, um, as you mentioned, it's really important to get that truthful human local perspective um, and, we, you know, we don't see it enough. So I'm very happy to support you guys today. No problems. Thank you so much, Jordan. Uh, and thank you and thank you so much for a really interesting book. I'll get more listeners to also read your book. <laughs> thank you. Fantastic. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you so much, Jordan. You take care for today. Have a good day. Have a Bye. good day. Bye-bye. And that was Jordan Goyal, the author of Why We Get Pushed Extremes Online and How Do We Stop It? So we basically discussed about the current situation with the air and its impact on the internet, media diversity and supporting independent media. I just want to say again, thank you so, so much to Jordan for supporting us on 3CR with Radiothon. And if you want to get his book, please go online and it's actually part of Monash University's publishing. So that's where you can access the book if you'd like to read it. It's really, really interesting. It just, even though you might maybe might feel like it might be a bit not timely because it talks about COVID and all, but then um, it's still very, very interesting. I feel like it kind of helps you to get a bit more insight on understanding why uh, you should not go to online and just easily trust things. So that's a yeah, really good book to avoid yourself from doing that. And you'll learn a lot from there. So, yep. Interesting, interesting stuff. And we are, we're going to be heading to a song now. This is called Tunlune Gil by Talma Pam. Oh, 
as a star fell from the sky. And that was the first song was Tulune Gil by Tama Plum, and the song that you literally just heard was Morning Star by Paul Chi. Really, really nice, beautiful songs for the morning. So we're going to be looking to another conversation that happened. So in the light of evidence showing the cost of renting continues to climb at alarming rates, further tipping the balance of power into the hands of landlords, we revisit a conversation we had with James Clark, who's the executive director of Digital Rights Watch, about the use in Australia of landlord tech such as Snug, which has attracted scrutiny after revelations about its dubious methods of scoring of rental applications in a Garden exclusive late last year. Snug has been engaged by Homes Victoria to develop a platform to allocate affordable housing in the state via random ballots, raising additional concerns about the nature and the use of its technology of this technology. Snug continues to be used in 2023. Let's take a listen. And we are now joined by James Clark, the Executive Director of Digital Rights Watch, to speak with us about the use in Australia of landlord technology such as Snug, which has attracted scrutiny after revelations about its dubious method of scoring of rental applications in a Guardian exclusive late last year. And most recently, Snug has been engaged by Homes Victoria to develop a platform to allocate affordable housing in the state via random ballot, which has raised additional concerns about the nature and use of this technology. James, good morning. Good morning. So I thought we can jump straight into it uh, by talking about some of the broad issues that are, are related to what you've previously described as landlord tech when it comes to renters' data privacy. So anyone who's recently applied for a rental in Australia will have come up against one of a number of tech platforms which operate to collect and store enormous amounts of personal information that's solicited by real estate agents despite having quite dubious privacy protection mechanisms. So what are some of the core concerns about the operation and normalization of landlord tech in Australia? Yeah, so we've got kind of two broad concerns here. The first one is just, like you mentioned, the data collection. Um, last year, we saw what can happen and just how harmful it is to collect so much data and when that data is not stored securely. We've seen, um, obviously, when the Office and Medibank breaches, just um, the scope of that. But there was also a Harcourt's data breach. Um, less public attention was on that. But, you know, this is something that we're really worried about. As anyone who rents knows, the amount of information that you're handing over to real estate agents in these application processes is, is really significant. You're handing over bank statements, all of your identification, you know, all of your previous addresses, your work, pay slips. You know, you, you've, there's so much information that's being handed over in a rental application that then is just stored by these companies. Mm. And we don't know for how long, um, often forever, right? And so that's, that's one area of concern as we, you know, we continue to increase, put tech into this space. The amount of information that gets collected is really significant. Landlord tech like Snug introduces kind of another layer of issues for us is that this is starting to become really, you know, it's trying to bring an element of intelligence to this and an element of um, machine learning that um, it's also starting to draw on other sources. So Snug builds your Snug score, which is kind of a match score for, you know, a tenant in a house, which is it's kind of a nonsense idea anyway, but mm-hmm. they're starting to draw on like your LinkedIn profile, your Facebook profile, your Twitter profile. They even can look at like Airbnb reviews of you and things like that. They start to like scrape the internet and search for other sources of information on you and start to collate that into that score. 
which obviously, you know, is highly invasive to kind of do that. But it's also starting to build up, I guess, like in, a, in an environment where a tenant has very little power and a landlord has a lot of power. And it just really builds this asymmetry of power that, like, who has access to tools like this? Who can build this kind of profiling, this kind of information? Um, and it's always rich people. It's always the people who already have a lot of power in our society who have that power to do that. You know, capital is able to wield this power against us. And our privacy is one of these ways that we can fight back against that kind of abuse. Yeah, of course. And I mean, like this scoring process has really raised so many red flags in that Guardian exclusive. There was a lot of exposure bringing to light of uh, the way that this is supposedly meant to help agents find the best fit for a rental property. But really, it allows for all kinds of discriminatory screening practices uh, that wouldn't otherwise necessarily be facilitated. So I'm wondering how digital rights infrastructure is actually keeping pace with privacy concerns that are raised by landlord tech and the extent of user data accessible by Snug, which, as you've mentioned, uh, potentially includes social media as one of many sources to construct these digital profiles of renters. Because I know that some personal attributes of renters are technically protected from being included in traditional renting screening processes. But how does this get complicated by the indirect nature of this data collection and aggregation? I guess one of the the main challenges that you're touching on here is just the, the lack of oversight. Like you say, there are these laws in place here about protected attributes being used to discriminate in rental applications. But when you put it into a black box like Snug, and often we find ourselves looking at automated decision-making processes, which are often more discriminatory or at least just as discriminatory as any other process that exists, but it's able to outsource that to the computer, I guess. Like they, they naturalize and normalize the discriminatory outcomes because they're like, well, the computer made that decision. The computer's impartial. And the computer's not impartial. Of course it's not because it's been programmed by normally by biased data and also normally by biased people. Um, and so one of the principles that, at least that I have in this, is that, you know, is it really better than a person? Does it actually improve the system? And normally, no. And if it doesn't, like, it's not better um, because you can't have oversight of an algorithm, I guess, in the same way that you can a person. Um, but we've also got to look at, like, just the political economy of this and, like, who who is wielding power. And, and I think, like, private companies like Snug producing these kinds of platforms that, you know, like the clients for Snug are not renters. They're not mm-hmm. tenants. Snug's clients are real estate agents and landlords. So they are making a tech that serves the interests of real estate agents and landlords. Um, and they always will build tech. And so one of the problems here is obviously it was broadly just the housing system and how exploitative it is. You know, no technical solution is going to solve this. That power imbalance between renters and landlords is something that needs to be addressed more broadly because as long as they have the power to make you homeless, they're going to be allowed to do almost anything they want. Yeah, I think that is such a good point because these things really are being described, you know, by spokespeople of the company as sort of these neutral tools. But of course, they come with so much baggage and power relations that are built into the way that they conduct their business and allocation of these scores and so forth. So, And I mean, it also ties into so many concerns that are already well established about the power disparity between people who are experiencing extreme socioeconomic deprivation and vulnerability uh, in terms of their ability to protect their data and the amount of data that's solicited from uh, uh, by by things like Centrelink. Um, 
to then um, have this company able to access it is so concerning. So, look, James, thank you so much for taking us through some of these concerns. Um, I think it's a really important live issue to stay on top of. And we'll make sure to link to Digital Rights Watch's work as well so people can keep up to date with what you're doing. Great. Thank you very much for having me. Awesome. Thank you. And that was James Clark, the executive director of Digital Rights Watch, who spoke with us about the use in Australia of landlord tech such as Snug, which has attracted scrutiny after revelations about its dubious method of scoring of rental applications in a Guardian exclusive late last year. And most recently, Snug has been engaged by Homes Victoria to develop a platform to allocate affordable housing in the state via random ballot, which has, of course, raised additional concerns about the nature and use of this technology. And that was a conversation with James Clark, uh, the executive director of Digital Rights Watch. They basically spoke about the the use in Australia of landlord tax, such as SNUG, which has attracted scrutiny after revelations of its various methods of scoring of rental applications in the Guardian exclusive late last year. And SNUG is continued to be being used in 2023. So... And regarding and now in, reg- in regarding to Radioton that has happened last week, we've actually only just reached about half of our target, um, which which is actually the total should be two hundred seventy five thousand um, dollars. We've still got a long way to go, so we've actually, we hope we really continuously to get your support if you really really want to continue listening to us and keeping us on air. So. But obviously, huge, huge thanks to everyone who donated to the 3CR Breakfast Stationwide. Um, uh, sorry, to 3CR Breakfast. Uh, stationwide, we are up to 147k, but we are aiming for 275k, so please keep donating. To call, hit, uh, call 9419-8377, or you can text 0488-809-855. If you can't do call or text, please head online at treecr.org.au slash donate. Or you can come into the station and drop uh, your uh, bank details or uh, cash. I think they take check as well, Grace. So we've got all bases covered if you want to donate to 3CR. Also, it is tax deductible, any donation over $2. So uh, that's a good win-win for you. Yep, definitely. So we have a lot of a lot of ways for you to continue to donate. So yeah, please just use any of them if anything that's convenient for you and you're just uh we'll be really grateful if you continue to support us and we've got something for claudia who is our fellow brecky presenter good morning claudia i hope you're listening if you are um she's uh unavailable uh, today because she's got a big uh big thing going on this week mm-hmm. so claudia uh so, uh, not, not <laughs> so this Friday, June 23rd, the Oral History Victoria is actually hosting a symposium themed oral history across and within communities. The event coincide, coincides with the Refugee Week and is open to all members of the community interested in hearing about the way live stories are collected, preserved and experienced. The guest speakers are Dr. Andre Dow from the Groundbreaking groundbreaking Behind the Wire Oral History Project, which recorded the first-hand experiences of people detained by the Australian government after seeking asylum in Australia. This, These human stories became an award-winning podcast called The Messenger. He'll be joined by Dr. Jordana Silverstein, co-author of the recently released Impact Report, Getting My Dignity Back. She'll be talking about just how meaningful 
and validating it can be to share one's story and create an oral history. And yes, we're in regards in relation to Claudia. Claudia will is our three C R presenter and will also be making an experience at the symposium. Well, when I say brekkies, Claudia will be talking about the role of community radio and in creating and sharing the older history of diverse communities. Really exciting stuff from Claudia. We're really looking forward to hearing that from her. The symposium is on this Friday. So remember, the symposium is on this Friday, 23rd June, 9.45 a.m. Uh, till 2 p.m. at Museo Italiano, which is at 199.99 Faraday Street, Carlton. It's a hybrid event, so you can join online if you want to, if you can't make it in person. Uh, to register, please head to Human Ticks on your device and plug in OHV Symposium 2023. Or go to the events page on the Oral History Victoria website at oralhistoryvictoria.org.au. Bookings close tomorrow, 5pm, so get in quick. We'll put the booking and information links in our show notes. So yeah, very exciting stuff from Claudia. Really look exciting to hear from her. Yeah, definitely. It's an interesting uh, uh, oral history and it's a fascinating topic uh, on hand. So make sure you can jump along on Friday. Awesome. Now we're going to get into a song for you. This is called Waltzing Maltilda by Tom Waits. Stagger, you buried the 
पद्मनाभम सुरेशम शांताकारुजगशयनम पद्मनाभम सुरेशम Robbie Thorpe. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison radio series, where we share the mic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men and women in Victoria's prisons. Uh, we are such a huge representation in prison all over Australia. Statistically, it has to stop, and it's going to not going to stop while you're building more beds in a prison. It's a band-aid. What about beds outside? Tune in to 3CR during NAIDOC week at 11am each day from Monday the 3rd to Friday the 7th of July. We'll take you inside six Victorian prisons. Dame Phyllis Frost Centre, Barwon Prison, Fulham Correctional Centre, Loddon Prison, Marguerite Correctional Centre and Port Phillip Prison. To hear stories, songs, opinions and poems from the men and women inside while connecting with culture and community. The shows will be live on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. Pre-sale digital and streaming via our website or the Community Radio Plus app. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au backslash beyond the bars. Connections interviews with food producers, backyard growers and urban farmers. Please join us Sunday, June 25th at 10am on 3CR Community Radio 855 on your AM dial, on 3CR Digital Radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Local Food Connections, a show about the importance of local food in sustainable communities. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bomb supply on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. The fears are Palestinian scarves 
and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organizations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafiyas.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. We're actually gonna we're actually supposed to be talking to Human Rights Lawyer Centre's lawyer David Mija Canalis, but unfortunately we weren't we weren't able to get him on the phone. Uh, but that's okay. So we're we're gonna be listening to Evan Wallace, who was our ex 3CR presenter. Patrick, do you want to introduce? Yeah, so uh, change of plans, great. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the, the joys of radio. Uh, so last week was our really lovely Radiothon show. If you want to go back and listen to the whole thing, go back to 3cr.org.au and go to podcasts and go to Wednesday Breakfast. You can listen back to the show from last week to hear everything from Radiothon. But we're going to give you a quick snippet of our chat with ABC journalist Evan Wallace. He was a former 3CR Breakfast presenter. Yeah, it's befuddling at times, uh, seeing how, how we've reported and thought of the issues in Alice Springs. Um, I think that a lot of it's been attached to the debate that's connected to uh, the referendum that we'll have this year on the voice to parliament. And subsequently, there's been a lot of conflation that's occurred with Central Australia and Alice Springs being thought of almost as some sort of uh, substitute for... Indigenous Australia, and that in itself is not a helpful way of reporting on the really pertinent issues uh, that hey, need to be addressed when unpacking conversations and debates relating to the voice, but also um, definitely confuses the focus when thinking about how to really best report on uh, these long-standing challenges and concerns that, uh, that do exist within Alice Springs, Central Australia. So what are the dominant messages that you feel... Australians reading the news and consuming the news have received about Alice Springs in this last spate of there's reporting? Been, there's been a pretty consistent message of Alice Springs as a town that's in collapse. There where there's a sense of lawlessness and there's a sense of hopelessness and helplessness that exist. If I was reading and watching and responding to how the media has covered what's unfolding right now uh, within Alice Springs, that would be a message that I would pick up on. I know that personally I've had a lot of friends and family who have contacted me and said, hey, Evan, how are you going? It sounds as though it's absolutely horrible there. And it is important to acknowledge that levels of crime in Alice Springs are horrible when reflecting on domestic violence rates, when thinking about assault rates, it's it's horrid. Uh, Alcohol-related presentations at emergency departments, shocking. These are statistics and figures and real lives that show that the town and community members are feeling a lot of pain, huge amount of pain. Um, And that is 
inherently sad and people should be shocked by that. One of the biggest challenges though, Claudia, is that these statistics, while they have definitely spiked, whatever baseline existed here in Central Australia was never acceptable beforehand and, and people should have been just as shocked before any media attention in recent times. In many senses, you could argue that this is an example of the media trying to make it, uh, or some aspects of the media that is, trying to make the story bigger than, than what it is, turning into something that would have coverage in our 24 news cycle, 24 hour news cycle, because it is fascinating that here we are about two and a half weeks, maybe three weeks now since Anthony Albanese visited Alice Springs, that uh, we're two weeks since some um, uh, alcohol restrictions were reinstated uh, within the Northern Territory and that attention has quietened down. But still, we know across the Territory, those crime rates that we're referring to, they're still horrible. The situation um, and that's experienced by so many members of uh, the First Nations community in Northern Territory, those realities remain the same, but the media attention disappears, which suggests that uh, it was a perfect storm for how aspects and elements of the media reported on and covered what's unfolded within uh, Central Australia uh, in, in recent weeks and recent months that, um, yeah, an opportunity was there and it was taken and it did make for very engaging reading. But for someone not based in Central Australia, potentially reading with uh, a lack of context. I just wanted to shift now to talk about the role of local newspapers and community outlets, uh, including community radio, in terms of the way they approach telling stories and what they bring to the table as a contrast to, for example, a national network that might fly in someone to cover a particular story. I was just having a skim through a couple of the local Alice newspapers today and noticing that the top stories weren't about this so-called crisis. Um, there was one about flood mitigation, uh, another one about children searching for bush tomatoes as part of a, a cultural pr- program in uh, an on-country uh, school. There was mention of some of the, the, the issues that have uh, we've talked about today, but it wasn't dominating and there was so much more happening, which I found really interesting. Oh, no question. And someone who used to work for a local newspaper and who has been really immersed and connected to different community media organisations over the years, um, I think that in answering your question, the role that community media plays and organisations such as 3CR also local newspapers as well too that you referred to is essential people really want a to be able to tap into different conversations to have alternative perspective to be able to see really excellent grassroots initiatives things that are being led from the community up so you talked about uh really fascinating flood mitigation initiatives or looking at um local horticultural approaches and that's that's it's really so critical that uh, those stories are shared and that there's a format and that there's a place where people can learn about what is occurring and emerging within the world, immediate world around them. And it can inspire people to go on to uh, think about 
things that may actually contribute and support that community in turn. Uh, I think also too, uh, to be able to have a, a rich debate of um, multiple perspectives that isn't just limited to those that you'll hear on the major broadcasters. It's critical in terms of idea development, uh, in terms of trying to think about who's being left out. Uh, can really they, they play such a, an essential role in widening the conversation and also reflecting a much uh, greater portion of the community. That was Claudia Craig uh, speaking to ABC journalist uh, Evan Wallace regarding Alice Springs, uh, the situation which has gone on there, and also he's a great supporter of 3CR Radio uh, with his donation last week at Radiothon. Awesome. And, yeah, thank you so much to Evan Wallace for chatting to us and making a donation. So now we've actually managed to get David back on on the call. So basically, David Major... Uh, David is the senior lawyer at Human Rights Lawyer Centre, and we're going to be discussing about anti-protest laws and its impact, including the need to support for HRLC for defending rights. Good morning, David. How are you? Good morning. I'm very well. Thanks for having me. No problem. So, David, when we before we head into a bit more detailed stuff, can we first get you to explain a bit about the anti-protest laws for the listeners that are unaware what it is? So around the country, we've seen some really worrying in terms of, you know, governments around the country, you know, Victoria, uh, Queensland, Tasmania, now South Australia and New South Wales have implemented some really severe anti-protest laws. These laws are often really vague and broad and they're actually, you know, let's just be clear, they're, they're actually targeting environmental people and climate protesters almost exclusively. Some of these laws have penalties that are really excessive for something that is quite a small offence. For example, blocking a road in New South Wales could land you with a two-year jail sentence or a $25,000 fine. In Victoria, it looks a little different. In Victoria, it's actually around protesting in logging areas. Mm. But, you know, we are very concerned about this really worrying development because every time we try to limit protests, we're actually limiting democracy. Mm, I see. And there's something that the South Australian government uh, 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 released about this re- uh, this month. Is that correct? That's right, yes. Just very recently, the South Australian government's lower house passed an anti-protest law in 22 minutes, which is not even enough time to do a lot of washing. But the lower house effectively uh, made penalties of obstructing a public place. Uh, they went from $750 as a maximum penalty to fifty. Thousand dollars. That's over sixty-fold increase in the maximum penalty, as well as increasing um, the imprisonment uh, time. So, if you, you know, you can actually get a maximum three months of imprisonment for blocking a public space, and that, that's just one example of many around the country where governments are really targeting environmental protesters in particular. Oh, I see. Uh, so. Uh, sorry, uh, David. Just, just one moment. Are you, are you actually on speaker? <laughs> just wondering. No, no, I'm not. No, no, I'm not. Oh, that's. I'm all. just in a really echoey room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no, no problem. All good. Yeah. So if you, uh, if 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 you, if possible, if you could just uh, bring your phone a bit closer to your ear, that would be uh, that closer to your to your ear and your mouth. That would be much better. Easy. easy. That would be, appreciate. Yeah. How's that? 
Yeah, you sound much, much better now. Thank you so much, <laughs> lovely. But don't worry, we could we could still easily hear you. That's all good. No, no worries Excellent. on that. No pressure. Yep. Oh yeah. So getting back to getting uh, getting back a bit to our question. Um. So. How, 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 how is this anti-protest laws affecting democracy? Like, why do you think this is a big threat to free speech? Of course. So the, um, the right to protest is a fundamental human right. When coupled with the right to vote, it has actually allowed us to expand our human rights and civil liberties because some of us owe our human rights more to protest than we do to politicians. And any time a government is seeking to limit the people who are trying to protest the government, I think every single one of us should be, should be really concerned by that because effectively what the government is saying is that we will allow you to protest us but only on a very narrow set of issues. And that's not how protest works. We should not be seeking permission from the government to protest them, particularly their inaction on climate change. But, but we should not be seeking their permission to protest them at all. It is a fundamental human right, the right to protest, which is, it's actually, there's no such thing as a right to protest. It's actually a combination of a whole lot of different rights, like the right to freedom of assembly, freedom of movement, the freedom of speech. And these things are how we've won all of our other human rights in the first place. So that's why any limitation on the right to protest is is actually a limitation on democracy itself. Mm, definitely. And we've got one last question for you, David, before we let you go. So I understand that our Human Rights Lawyer Centre is obviously a great, really great platform that is continually supporting to defending rights. And you obviously also have a donation that's upcoming. Could, do you want to tell us a bit more about what, what that is? Of course. So, uh, you know, the, the work that we do um, is is quite expensive and, and quite because it's time consuming. And at the moment, we do have an appeal where we are asking people to contribute to, to help us not just protect the right to protest, but also bring freedom and liberty to people who are seeking refuge and asylum, to make sure that whistleblowers are protected, to make sure that businesses also follow the human rights principles that they must follow you know, so that people are free from modern slavery. And that's the work that we do at the Human Rights Law Centre. And if folks go to hrlc.org.au, you'll be able to see information about our appeal. And we would love anyone's contributions um, to help us do the really important work that we do at the HRLC. Mm. I see. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, David, for your time today. And we'll make sure to get people to uh, give, continuously give donations to HRLC. And, of course, to support Community Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers. Take care today. Bye-bye. And that was David Mija Canalis, who is the Senior Lawyer at Human Rights Lawyers Centre, where we were discussing about the anti-protest laws and its impact that is given uh, on democracy here in Australia. And obviously, uh, yeah, we, we, HRLC continues to be a place for you to help defend your rights and continue to fight back against and these anti-laws protests, uh, these anti-laws, sorry, anti-protest laws. <laughs> so, um, yeah, do you, if you want to continue supporting HRLC to help continue fighting for our rights, uh, please head, please head to hrlc.org.au to give your donation. Yeah, really fascinating uh, conversation there, Grace, regarding protest laws and the ongoing uh, situation regarding protests. You know, it was only last Thursday when I was at the rally uh, for Barack Beacon where there was about seven police around. So it's, it's fascinating which protest has more police at and the other one doesn't have. So it's a, it's a fascinating uh, conversation to have and love to have him back on again in the future. Mm, definitely. And I think, yeah, that's all we've got for our show today. Uh, 
really, really exciting stuff. Patrick, I really hope you have a great time over away. Thanks very much, Grace. I'll be taking listeners, I'll be taking a bit of time off for a month, but I'll be back uh, middle of July. So uh, make sure to uh, f- listen in when that comes, but also make sure to stay with 3CR today. Uh, we've got a big, big week of shows coming up and into the future. Awesome. And now we're now going to be heading to Stick Together. So stay tuned for Stick Together. And thank you, everyone, for today. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.